BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We got to get these doggies. They're out of the pen. We got to get them back in the pen. In the pen. In the sure, pen. We got to get them over to the last podcast network country jamboree, June 18th, 2022 at the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville, Tennessee. Come and check out all the shows that you love on the last podcast network. We'll be in front of you in our meat space and we cannot wait to entertain you and have a great time. But for those of you that can't come in person, go to momenthouse.com slash LPOTL and buy your live stream ticket. Yes. yes. You too can watch us perform our jangly country jamboree from the nudity of your couch. Absolutely fantastic. I hope you guys enjoy the show. Thank you so much for your support. And we are so excited to be at the OG Grand Old Opry. Hail yourselves. Wow, what a difference. Blockbuster Video. Wow, what a difference. Blockbuster Video has all of the latest new releases like Independence Day, Titanic, and of course, Men in Black 2. Enjoy our selection of snacks. And of course, if the movie's not there, we guarantee something. I don't know what, but just please come. For the love of God, I know a Hollywood video opened up next door and it's much nicer. Just please come to Blockbuster. Hi, I am uh, a Blockbuster video employee bruiser. And I'm unfortunately sorry to tell you, Jake, uh, your son did not return that uh, VHS copy of Spaceballs uh, in time, and you have incurred $120 in late fees. That is repulsive. That feels really bad. <laughs> I could have sworn. Uh, no, wait. The I, We have it for three nights, right? It's a three-night program? There's literally nothing I can do. It wasn't even that late, but you owe... Uh-oh, it went up again somehow. Oh, You now owe Jesus. $475. Your son, by the way is the reason so um you're about to get into a big fight and, you didn't even uh, want space balls you wanted <laughs> dumb and dumber but you were out there was a whole wall of empty dumb and dumber boxes also um you still owe us uh on a copy of the thomas crown affair which i believe it says here my files you didn't even enjoy that movie and you owe me 54 dollars for uh in late fees this is insane i i swear <laughs> i put it in the dropbox at 702 p.m that's that does doesn't count <laughs> this is and this is all right this was my struggle right <laughs> and i'm happy i will stand but i know that that's what hitler called his book but you know what i mean i'm just it's a different struggle mind blockbust <laughs>
because we all know going back blockbuster video rental store newsflash if you don't know what blockbuster is then i feel old um i i, I did work at blockbuster and definitely one of my greatest challenges was or, or follies was was watching someone so happy to be renting a video so polite and pleasant and then that immediately all turning to shit when I skin, and I had to deal with it on every other customer. You yeah. know, it was like, "Hey, what's up, Doc? Ha ha ha! Little Bugs Bunny reference for you. How you doing? You want my ID? Yeah, sure. Wonderful Monday we're having. Oh yeah, every Monday's a wonderful Monday. You know what I mean? We're going back and forth and everything. And then I scan their membership card, mm-hmm. and lo- every fucking time that little little war- alert came up, it was just like they owe X amount of money. Now our relationship is has just crumbled before my very eyes. Even if it's just a few bucks, um, so I'm so. But but usually it wasn't. It was like an exorbitant mm-hmm. amount of money. It was like you came here to spend four dollars. You I believe it was three dollars and twenty five cents or something like that. You came here to spend three bucks. You now have to spend thirty bucks for a movie that you might not have even watched mm-hmm. and or hate because you watched it. Horrible, horrible. Yeah, definitely. And boy, was it really easy to erase late fees. And boy, did I try to do it as much as possible. But man, did my manager never allow me to... uh, I would get into trouble if I erased too many of them. Just click a touch of a button. Erase your all your problems go away. So... there, Blockbuster represents a very specific era, that 1985... To 2000, was it seven, eight? When is it close? 2000, mm. 2014 20, is when the last corporate yeah. store closes. 2014. There were a bunch of holdouts. Uh, famously, the last store in Bend, Oregon, still kicking. Um, but it represents the VHS era, the, the DVD era. It represents a very specific time in American pop culture. It represents people's childhoods. And here's the thing. I hated Blockbuster. Like, it took me researching this topic and genuinely, like, investigating my feelings towards Blockbuster that, like, I desperately wanted a new release movie. It was something I missed in theaters. It was something I had been waiting, you know, months and months because back then, uh, you know, the wait for home release was a ticking clock until you could finally get get ready for some old man energy right now kids back in our day we didn't maybe have to walk three miles in the snow to get to school but we definitely had to wait several several months before a film in the movie theater would come out uh on any kind of way that you could access it at home and oh now you've got the streamers never since pandemic even more so they're just immediately rentable you don't even have to go anywhere you don't have to leave you can just watch it on a giant 4K television that's like pretty much an even better viewing experience than the theater at this point. And don't even get me started on pornography because I will go on and on, my children, about how difficult and challenging it was to access Save it for the bonus feed, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. It's all porn June. It's porno June only on the Patreon. Yeah, it's porno June. You know that famous month, porno June? <laughs> it's pride and porno, the two P's. Pride and porngidus is what we're calling it. <laughs> now that I've completely derailed. So going to Blockbuster and just they never had the movie that I wanted. It was yeah. always just an empty wall and it would I'd just be wandering up and down the aisles in what they uh, I now know is the catalog section. 
this just like graveyard of VHSs. You walk into like the horror section. There's a bunch of like fucked up puppet master VHS boxes like staring at you and they're just upsetting and they're burned into your retinas. And you're just like, your parents are like tapping their watch. Like you've been there for an hour and just the paralysis of just not getting what you wanted. Getting some settled thing that you just like barely care about. And then, you know, you didn't get around to watching it. It's Sunday and your parents are like, come on, we got to get a blockbuster. Got to, got to return them. And I'm like, no, wait, I thought it was three nights. And they're like, it's three evenings. They count Sunday <laughs> till seven as a se- as an evening that you mm. get to watch the movie. And I'm just like, this is the worst. <laughs> this is the absolute worst. And it wasn't until... Um, I know Hollywood video is the competitor that yeah. uh, most people talk about. Uh, in my neighborhood, it was a it was a chain called Movies with M O O. Oh, I rem- think like I remember cow. that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think they're uh, North Carolina based. I think they're yeah. actually like bigger in the South. There was one random location in suburban New York, and like they had the movies I wanted. You could only rent them for a night, but if it was a movie you actually went to the store on rent a movie night. You would. That's fine. That's absolutely fine. <laughs> and because it was for only one day, they had it in stock, even if you showed up on Saturday, because all the Friday people had to return it. Uh, they had the video games I wanted. It was just a the computers were updated. They weren't computer systems with uh, amber monochrome uh, monitors like everything about it was seamless and perfect. And I never went back to Blockbuster and doing the research for this episode. It turns out that all of that. All those pain points, all that existential grossness that I associate with a trip to Blockbuster had concrete, actual reasons from the corporate higher ups that were just never addressed from their entire uh, business time and business. Well, they uh, for many years had no reason to other than the potential threat of future companies and technology wiping them out, which of course would end up being the case. But for the longest time, Blockbuster was it. I mean, back where, you know, I do kind of remember movies and Hollywood video as well. And I remember dabbling in those establishments. But at the end of the day, there were like three Blockbusters within like a five minute drive of my house that you could hop from one to the other two uh, if you so needed to find stuff. And for the longest time, I mean, it was it was the place to be. In Charlotte, we did have a really cool uh, indie, like every section designated, like sections uh, separated by director. Mm-hmm. There was a trauma section. It was called Art Video. I don't know if it still exists, um, but I definitely wanted to get a job there over Blockbuster. But when I went, I was clearly deemed not ever at all cool enough as the as uh, as the cool dudes that were working at the video store Visar Video, and so I was quickly denied uh, from that job, and so ended up at Blockbuster Video at Cotswold Mall in Charlotte. Um, it obviously no longer exists. It was replaced by a UPS store, but it's kind of off to the side on the far corner of the store, which made it, I guess, a pretty juicy locale for a robbery, and we we'll, can we can talk about that later. But um, still, they had they really did were the place to go if you wanted to rent a movie for quite some time, besides a couple of mom and pop shops. But you know, you're talking about not finding the video you want, but at the same time, I mean, if it came to a tiny. Mom 
mom and pop shop and the newest release oh, being yeah. available there and a blockbuster video nearby with its walls of the movie, you know, um, all, you know, I just, any big new release, it would just be walls and walls of that new release um, available. Uh, you know, I, I also had several memories of getting exactly what I wanted from blockbuster. And, you know, I was telling Jake before this blockbuster really, what I'm excited to do this episode. Cause not only did I work there, so I can definitely talk plenty about that, but also man, blockbuster like got me through some fucking hard times, man. I struggled a lot in middle school. I even have memories though of elementary school, like Friday night. If we had this like performance report, kind of weekly performance report thing, and if I d- d- made all my marks and did everything how I was supposed to, I was treated with a trip to Blockbuster Video and and a couple of rentals. Oftentimes, it would be you know I've talked about this on other episodes. It would be those Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles uh, animated show, you know the cartoon show, the initial one, um, t- collections of those. I watched uh, that Hobbit, that animated Hobbit, like way, way too many times because I kept renting it from Blockbuster. Just so many movies. Oh, and how fun it was to be so terrified of the horror section as well. So scared of it. It was like this. It was like its own haunted house within the Blockbuster video. It really was. You were actively afraid of this row of videotape covers, which is great. And honestly, it was kind of remained that way for me, like pretty much up to like high school. This is a weird poll, but the VHS cover of Jason Goes to Hell, where like this yes. demon worm is like wiggling its way out of the Terrifying. eye socket of the Awful hockey mask. Movie too. Yeah. It's like it's it's seared into my retina. Like I when you're when if I imagine in a nightmare, like, oh, I'm in hell, that fucking worm from the VHS cover is still <laughs> Like shouting at yeah 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 it, it it you know and getting and getting to the kids section and renting and finding the thing you want or not oftentimes not especially if it was the Ninja Turtles uh, cartoon collections because that was it was like almost impossible to get that but either way like picking up a couple of those a trip to McDonald's I oh, get a you know dream a happy meal take it home, eat. There's TGIF on the TV. We've got movies we're going to watch. How many sleepovers were encapsulated? How many oh. summer vacations were encapsulated with by, you know, there was always a couple of blockbuster VHS tapes and eventually DVDs off to the side uh, for your enjoyment. It was <sighs> such a massive part of my childhood and, and movies and like the, the candy and movies and those sorts of things were really my comfort area my 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 place my sanctum after so many struggles in in uh in my day-to-day life at school um just having such a hard time adjusting to being um, a kid growing up. And my, you know, I, I, I really early on, because I was just not having a good go of it, I remember being like, you just always need to have something to look forward to. And oftentimes it was that trip to Blockbuster. I mean, how many Saturdays did my, I have my mom take me to Blockbuster to rent a couple videos and then we go uh, to the fresh market and get that them good Sour Patch Kids. And I'd grab a couple of Coca-Colas and just go in my room and just sit in my room much to the pleasure of my parents who then could be rid of me for uh, the entire rest of the day and just marathon my rentals and eventually video game rentals which was 
I mean, in a time, um, again, as a kid, like now I can kind of basically, because I don't, I don't like, I also don't have a problem. So I think if I, it would be different if I had a problem, but I could basically buy any video game I want whenever I want. Right. Like nothing usually holds me back at this point, at least at this current time, we'll see how things go as this kid gets older and the money continues to siphon out of my bank account. I'm afraid your daughter has a weird jaw condition that requires (laughs) a new form of laser braces that cost $8 million. (laughs) Then it'll change. But until that time comes, uh, yeah, I can do that. But back in the day and when you were a kid, whoa, mama, get into... And and it was uh, video games too were five-day rentals, I believe. You got video games for longer. Which was even more amazing. Yeah, you got video games for longer and to take home... Although that meant that still they would be out of stock and you'd end up walking home with Clay Fighters Champion Edition. Oh, hey, let's not... Come on. A lot of Clay Fighter hate coming from old Jakey Bones over here. I'm sorry. It's just, uh, you know what? I've been going through a lot and also if you just look at the objective quality of the game itself. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, being able to to either sample a game to make sure you really wanted to eventually purchase it or just to be able to beat a game in one rental period and return. Oh, that felt that was the best feeling. <laughs> Especially for those games that were money sinks that were those games that you, you know. I remember I'll always remember like Crash Bandicoot 2, I beat I think that night. I think I even tried to not beat it that night and I still ended up beating it that night because I just couldn't help myself. And man, does that suck to buy a full price game like that. And so Blockbuster gave you that option. And not to mention that, but the big, oh, if you remember this audience, the big plastic case that they pulled out (laughs) with a PlayStation in it or an N64 in it. Now, I was a PlayStation kid, so I don't believe I ever rented a PlayStation from Blockbuster, but I definitely rented an N64, I think on a couple of different occasions once in order to play Mario 64 which I still like just saying that out loud I I can smell the plastic case I like remember like it was yesterday like taking it home and get and just being obsessed with Mario 64 for like the full rental period of I guess five days I don't I forget how long you could have a console for which also to if you remember this time, if you were a kid during this uh, saga era of uh, video rentals and everything and Blockbuster, the um, the struggle that you had to go through to convince your mom to uh, leave the $200 deposit mm. on the credit card in order to rent the console. Because it was a special thing. You had to put down a deposit. And that was always the part where... You, where it was going to be touch and go. You'd be like, come on, mom. I promised I was going to have this thing. You're going to get the money back. The guy's like, you'll definitely get the money back. Come on, mom, you'll get the money back. <laughs> and getting to take that home and play an enti- on an entire gaming console. Yeah. You, I mean, could you imagine doing that with the PS5 right now? It's insane. I mean, there's as we speak, there's like 800 weird startups that are like, yeah, we'll send you a PS5 for $30 a week. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's is so like there's just so many memories i have or fond just fond feelings i have around going stepping into a blockbuster and you know and and either getting exactly what i want or having or being forced to pivot and get something else you know and then i got shot at but then also <laughs> in college uh i i have enough, my fond, probably my last fond memory well a couple couple fond memories of blockbuster um uh, near the end in college we spent an entire summer i've talked about this before watching every single nightmare on elm street and Friday the 13th in preparation for at the end of the summer the uh, film Freddy versus Jason came out which totally was awesome 
awesome. It totally was worth it. And so Blockbuster again became this huge part of my life as a college kid um, because I would be going once a week at least, uh, if not every like couple of days, to go pick up more Freddy and Jason films and go home and watch the shit out of them. And like, what other way were you going to do that? You know. And of course, there were always the cooler video rental store in town. It was always a little weirdly way too far away, and but you would go make special trips there. But man, at the end of the day, of the my day to day spot I was going to blockbuster video and then working there and working there was boring as shit and also actually reinforced me um bad habits as a worker because i think that was the kind of job where you were just trying to figure out how to like waste time as much as possible i mean it never got like you know there was never like a rush on it that much maybe like on a friday night at like 7 p.m there'd be a little bit of a rush line but for the most part you know it was just a very monotonous boring place to be but i had some fun times i had some friends um that i made there i had some friends that we we both got a job there at the same time so oh yeah but they, they very quickly made us stop working together which was very upsetting they uh i just uh a guy shot at me in one and i'll talk about that at some point but uh yeah baby's first job as well so blockbuster really was in the background of my life from elementary school age all the way up into college. I even have some college stuff. And then the last final memory I have, New York City, July 4th, rooftop partying in in, uh, Ridgewood, Queens. And uh, we had a rock band set. And we were all hyped to play a certain game that had just came out. My buddy managed to find it, even though I believe it was even sold out like in the GameStops and stuff, managed to find a copy to rent at the like one of the last blockbusters I've ever even seen in my life uh, in that neighborhood. And that would be a Beatles rock band. And we rocked out. I remember the hype when he brought that home. He was like, he just he left the party was like, let me just see if it's there. It fucking managed. It was fucking there, and he got it, and we had the best time ever. And that's that's my last blockbuster memory. But it's weird to feel so passionate about such a dumb uh, corporation that drew, it ran itself into the ground. A lot of this episode is going to be about how to not run a corporation um, uh, for sure. But it, it, it's like the bizarrely the soundtrack of my life is this dumb video rental uh, chain of shops. First of all, Holden, that was beautiful. That was actually a beautiful testament to a childhood and the role of media and the role of like everything. I wish the thing I was that was like that for me was sexier, but no, it was McDonald's and Blockbuster. Let's just be honest. It wasn't like a a deli or a cappuccino shop nearby. Whatever. uh, For uh, every other generation, it was like going to the Sears, uh, going through the Sears Roebuck catalog and drinking uh, (laughs) RC Cola. Like, who gives a fuck? It's always going to be. If you're like, hey, what happened to Blockbuster? And you think to yourself, oh, it was Netflix. Uh, Netflix killed it. You are not correct. You are not correct at all. Um, There's been so much hand-wringing and finger-pointing about what actually went down and how such a uh, fixture of American family life could have like just collapsed seemingly overnight. Um, my source for this is uh, an amazing book that I have to plug immediately called Built to Fail, The Inside Story of Blockbuster's Inevitable Bust by a man named Alan Payne. Alan worked as a franchisee of Blockbuster. There were uh, corporate stores that was the ma- like the huge majority of stores. And then there was a small contingent at the height, maybe 25% of stores were owned by independent franchisees. 
And he is the guy that kept Blockbuster open. Uh, you might have seen stories. I know uh, John Oliver did a story about like the last blockbusters in Alaska. There's a terrible documentary on Netflix called. It's so fitting too. The Netflix one in Oregon still exists. The Alaska ones don't. They're closed in 2018. Totally, but but I just it's so fitting that Netflix put out a documentary about the last blockbuster, and it's maybe the worst documentary I've ever seen. I'm so over getting just random comics or whoever's to sit down and be like, yeah, I used to like go there, and I used to like. It's like you couldn't find one employee that also became famous like there's literally like just such a dearth of people to get that you just had to get like every stoner comedian to sit down and be like they had movies and there was like candy and man blockbuster man it was like the most filler heavy shitty documentary i've ever seen in my life don't watch that doc i'll just explain to you what happens in it you're and, talking and you'll about be filler bullshit documentaries on netflix and honestly <laughs> the same thing that happened a blockbuster where it's weird niche in the entertainment ecosystem that they found a workaround to create a profitable business uh, that then dried up is also happening right now to Netflix. So many people have written articles. The stock price is tanked. They've lost the rights to all of this content that was uh, their like kind of yeah. value proposition that we have all this stuff instantaneously. You don't have to think about it. And uh, for a price you literally can't deny, and now they're cracking down on password sharing, they've been repeatedly raising their prices, yep. and all of these studios that were just dumping movies and TV shows onto them because they didn't understand the streaming uh, platform's room for growth has now taken it all away and formed their own platforms, and Netflix is reduced to kind of just churning out these, like, shitty documentaries and reality shows and this cheap content that people don't actually want. Hey, I much. love those shitty reality shows. How dare Say you, Jake something, Young. I'm giving up on you. <laughs> when Gary said that he didn't want to marry me, but maybe he would, I just, it, I don't know what to think anymore. <laughs> <laughs> He's referencing Love is Blind, which is an amazing, ooh, such a good shitty uh, reality show. Yeah, it's really interesting time to be putting out a blockbuster episode because of what we're seeing happen to Netflix and what's going on with streamers. And I will say, I agree with you. Netflix is not why Blockbuster went out of business. Didn't help. And definitely Netflix was inspired, and we'll get into this, but was inspired by a late fee for Blockbuster. That's semi-apocryphal. They like... Semi, yes. I agree with you on that. But still, it's... it's, I mean... If your business becomes, and we're about to get into the history and everything, and we're going to cover this in more depth, but if you're, I will say, if your business becomes based fundamentally on like a contentious relationship with your customer base in the in the form of late fees, in this case with Blockbuster, eventually the chicken will come home to roost. Eventually, the fucking the uh, you know the dam okay. will break. All right, hold in. So I know you got a source that was uh, not. From my boy Alan Payne, who was on the ground in the fucking streets. Alan Payne, by the way, younger brother of Max Payne. He's out there. He's gritty. He's a detective. He's doing bullet time, shooting through holes. After reading his book, I cannot recommend this. I would believe this guy can do bullet time. It was such a. (laughs) It felt like a true crime novel. I feel like I was watching a fucking series of murders in the business world, (laughs) reading this poor guy trying to come to uh, the point I was trying to make was uh, late fees was not the contention late fees was not 
what killed Blockbuster. If anything, getting rid of late fees hobbled the individual stores because you need late fees in any rental business. If you rent a car, you need people to return the cars. If you rent construction equipment, you need people to return the construction equipment. Getting rid of late fees, which then it will get to that whole kerfuffle, uh, means that there's more people that come to Blockbuster wanting their fucking DVD of Avatar, and it's out because nobody cares to bring it back to the store. Uh-huh. Oh, God. Okay, we got to get into it. We got to get into it. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. We got to get into it. Blockbuster Video was a chain of video rental shops founded by a guy named David Cook that at its peak boasted 9,094 stores and 84,300 employees under its umbrella, including myself. The chain has since filed for bankruptcy in 2010. And at this current time, only one franchise store remains open in Bend, Oregon. Now, let's take a trip, not via the Way Way Back Machine, because he's evil, all wow. the way back to 1978. Oh, I know that's the 60s, whatever. Um, oh, fuck. I did too much cocaine, I guess. Yeah. 1978. That's yeah. what they did, right? No, I think America was in love with angel dust. That's right. PCP. We're going wacky <laughs> for it. <laughs> I love how the walls are bleeding right now. <laughs> Welcome to 1978. <laughs> I don't think we know anything about what happened in the late 70s, Jake, now that I'm experiencing this moment with you. I don't think Would we you know. join me in a canoe with an angel dust sweetie or my angel dust sweetie tonight? I you know, angel dust sweetie. I love angel dust sweetie. You know that about me. That was the first thing I told you when we met uh, at the Creek of the Cave in uh, Queens. But either way, back in 1978, David Cook founded Cook Data Services, a software company that set out to service oil and gas industries throughout Texas with economic analysis software. Now, over the next five years, sales would double for this company every year. Cook took the company public in 1983. But unfortunately for Cook, just six months after that, this is an interesting precursor to what would happen to Blockbuster. Just six months after that, the business's value fell largely due to a surplus of oil that caused the companies to look at ways to cut expenses and the software that was going for as much as $120,000 at the time was one of the first things to go. So why, you're like, how do we get from oil company analysis software to Blockbuster Video. What is the one-to-one? Well, essentially, it was due to this initial failure. The stock then plummeted just as they had been expanding their staff and offices in anticipation of major growth, which was followed by a class action lawsuit from stockbrokers alleging the company made misleading statements about their earnings prospects. So Cook was left in, according to him, a, quote, very delicate position of having been given all this money and then finding the industry we were going to invest in had gone away. 
And also, he said, one day you feel like you're the king of the industry, and the next day you feel like you failed miserably. It reflects on your self-image, self-respect, and confidence, and you begin to have doubts as to whether you're as good a manager as you thought you were. Interesting foreshadowing for what would happen to the company he would go on to create and leave pretty early on. So while this is happening uh, from the late 70s to the early 80s, the home movie, the revolution is uh, this giant controversial thing that is happening between American movie studios and American and uh, electronics companies, actually Japanese ones, if we have to do uh, Sony versus the Motion Picture Association. Um This is a quote from 1982, Jack Valenti, president of the Motion Picture Association. He says, I say to you that the VCR is to the American film producer and the American public as the Boston Strangler is to a woman home alone. They are trying to make sure that people cannot watch movies at home. (laughs) That is how like crazy they were to make movies inaccessible to people. Eventually, it made it to the Supreme Court on a five to four decision that people were allowed to use VCRs at home. And so movie studios kind of relented because they did see a new revenue stream and they were like testing out the waters. But to make it a pain point, to make the theater still appealing, home video cassettes were priced at anywhere from $65 to $99. And that's back in like 1980s money. Because the idea is, well, if you went to the theater with your whole family three times, that would like, you know, we, we were just recouping the costs we would have had at the theater. And so all of a sudden people are buying VCRs for home use, but movies aren't being shown on TV in the quantity or in, in just selection that people want it. And so how do you get movies at home? These mom and pop rental shops open up. It's a fairly easy thing. You have something of a high value that enough people want but can't afford, and you just rent it to multiple people. And, you know, if you rent a single movie 22 times for a couple of bucks a pop, you now it's a profitable business. And so it's this easy uh, thing to start up. You just get inventory and you just track it. And it's a highly desirable uh, commodity that people want to get movies for their fancy new VCRs. And it's 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 basically just a, a small retail boom. People all over the country are starting these uh, rental shops and it's it's you're just making money hand over the fist. But, you know, you have to carry uh, adult content and that's like a little unseemly. Uh, these are smaller, less capitalized uh, business owners. So they have to use in ideal uh, retail locations it's kind of hard for uh, anything like major to kind of sprout in this time. And the other thing too is tracking technology for all of those videos is mm-hmm. very difficult and usually done with like pencil and paper at this point. Uh, yeah, you stamps, know, like library yeah. book stamps. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So meanwhile, this is all going on. Uh, David Cook hires a guy named Chet Mills as a strategic planner. Cook said, we had three pages of criteria. We were looking for a fragmented market without dominant players, a business that could be set up on a local basis and easily replicated in other markets, and a business where we could throw up some competitive barriers. And uh, after they settled the lawsuit, Cook managed to sell the existing company's energy software operation for $2.5 million dollars. 
And what remained was that money along with $9.2 million in cash and no debt and four remaining employees. Cook then set out to do something new. Cook said, overall, it was like somebody handing me $10 million and saying, here, develop a new business. And it was actually Cook's wife who had gained an interest in the movie rental business and uh, pointed Cook in that direction uh, and saw exactly what Jake said. Uh, you know, households had gone over a five year period, had gone in uh, starting in 1980 from uh, 2% of households owning a VCR to uh, 21% of households owning a VCR. And that number was going to keep increasing over the next few years, of course. So Cook decides to pump $700,000 into superstores that, unlike these smaller mom-and-pop shops, could stay open for long hours, could offer a selection of 7,000 to 12,000 VHS tapes using the technology from his previous company. Cook said... We're applying technology and large-scale distribution concepts to an emerging market that's in its infancy. There's nothing magic about it. We're just the first to do it in this industry. And there you go. That's where we get to the first blockbuster being birthed uh, out in Texas, of course, because you know he's an oil guy. Uh, he hires a management team of executives seasoned in retail and distribution. And since he had zero experience in this field at this time, he really needed those extra players. Um, he's kind of ambling. like He has this concept. And he's got the money for the business. But he's not like the best businessman, and he just kind of knows how to set things in motion for someone else to really take the torch and run with it. He names the new company Blockbuster Entertainment Corp. Then he sets out to try and convince these major tape distributors that they were legit and serious. However, according to Cook, at first, quote, they didn't let us have more than $1,000 credit. Uh, but still, the first Blockbuster store opens in October of 1985 in Dallas, Texas, with an inventory of 8,000 VHS and 2,000 beta tapes. Cook said, the first night, we were so mobbed, we had to lock the doors to prevent more people from coming in. A literal Blockbuster. Yeah. Actual 100%. lines around the corner. And this clearly showed the franchise would be a sound investment. And Cook's next move was to buy, build a $6 million warehouse in Garland, Texas, so the stores could, quote, pop up instantly. And uh, this is when Wayne uh, Huizinga so enters the picture. Already, the business model is proving itself. He's making money hand over fist. His stores are outperforming any local business that comes their way. The audience is ravishing for this, uh, for all these movies in a brightly lit, easily accessible store. And he's doing so well that when it comes time to start getting public financing, he can't. Literally, an article is written in the September 1986 edition of Barron's that claims that, uh, first of all, anybody can do what he's doing because he's not doing, he's just opening stores, having, buying videos and renting them out. So Blockbuster Entertainment isn't anything special. And also, they think the home video thing is a fad. They just don't believe that it's like going to be a sustainable business and that his claimed numbers of profitability from each store is literally too good to be true and that he's clearly uh, running some kind of scam. That article caused Blockbuster's stock to drop and his secondary stock offering was, uh, he planned for $18 million to come in from that and only got $4 million. Uh, Cook says, the Barron story was the single changing point in my life. Uh, with the washout of his secondary public offering, he sought money from other sources to fill his growth plans. And then 
Uh, he ended up selling controlling interest to a businessman that whose name we shall now learn. I don't want to have to pronounce it first. I'm scared to pronounce it. Wayne Huizinga? Yes, I also love the Big Bang Theory. <laughs> uh, he was an entrepreneur focused in waste management at the time. So just remember, Blockbuster Video is the child of waste management and oil. Huizinga <laughs> <laughs> invested $18 million into the company in exchange for voting control and eventually took over the operation altogether. His cook found himself to be lacking in the whole running a corporation department. He has since said it was an amicable split, that he was really happy to see what Huizinga did with the company. Zinga fucking crushed it out of the ballpark. Uh, Wazinga uses the same strategy he used to make his waste management company a huge success. He went out and bought up a bunch of independent rental stores and smaller chains instead of the franchise approach that Cook had intended to go with. And he was highly influenced by Ray Kroc's model of expansion, who was the mastermind behind McDon- the McDonald's franchise by coming up with the way to have more control over the restaurants by opening, uh, being open via franchises. Essentially, what Ray Kroc figured out was it was better to get into the land property business than it was the franchise business. And if you wanted to have control over your big chain of restaurants, right? So Mm. the way he did McDonald's was I essentially lease out the building to you and hook you up with all of the assets and everything to be a McDonald's. And therefore, I am immediately getting money from you as a leasee. And I have much more control as a franchiser over the franchisee. Uh Right. And that was applied as well to the blockbuster model of expansion. There was also a franchisee program, but Huizinga uh, specifically made it that no more than 25 percent of existing stores could be franchisees Mm. uh, so that he can maintain the control that he needed. Uh, He started a buying spree. Uh, He knew that the store model was kind of perilous. Uh, In a quote, he says, we have to move fast because we have nothing exclusive. Anybody can duplicate this. The key to Blockbuster's domination early on was just opening in as many markets as possible so that just the idea of renting a video in America meant going to a Blockbuster. And in places where they had smaller stores, either buy, get them out of business and turn them into Blockbusters or just outcompete them with superior stock, superior uh, location. Just do everything you can to just keep growing and growing and growing because New uh, stores means an increase in sales. It looks great on the number sheet. If you open 8,000 stores, that's 8,000 locations with new uh, sales to put on your deck. The fact that the leases on those uh, properties cost money. The fact that uh, head, you know, the store employees cost money. The fact that the DVDs themselves cost money. That's incidental. The fact is you open more stores, it looks better on the line. And it's just a self-perpetuating money machine, especially at a stage when people are just, I cannot stress this enough, people want these goddamn plastic rectangles filled with magnetic tape that when placed in a machine can show you a movie. Yeah. It's also really funny too, like remembering Blockbuster Video. Wow, what what a a difference. difference. That was actually referring to like, wow, we're so much better than these shitty mom and pop stores that don't have but like half or even just a small fraction of what we can offer. And they're all evil. I love what you brought up, Jake. Um, I was like, yeah, and also like the mom and pop stores, they had like the weird porn section, which Blockbuster was very much opposed to like making it very much uh, for making it family friendly. Didn't have that like secret, you know, porno section in the back with the beaded curtain. 
they kind of made a video rental store lascivious and there was always like that faces of death section in the <laughs> mom and pop shop that you didn't have and you brought up a good point at the study session Jake of like yeah and that kind of they were sort of forced to offer that because they needed to do what Blockbuster don't um, I'm about to talk about Nintendo so good timing for that reference um, so they had to kind of offer the stuff that made them kind of evil in order to compete a little bit you if, know you know 50% of your rentals are from weird perverts that want to watch people fucking die uh, <laughs> because they went to Blockbuster and like excuse me where can I watch someone get fucking beheaded and then have someone else make love to the sir stuff? I'm gonna have to ask you to remove your cape first of all okay because I don't know what it's you're hiding in there it's a medical cape I have a condition <laughs> medical cape yes I've never heard of that <laughs> okay alright and never that mind. gimp right there take... is your service animal is that also what you're about to tell me his name is Gary he has a driver's license oh it's totally fine I signed up for this and by the way there's a lot of human shit in my gimp suit right now if you could please clean that out uh, when you get a chance silence Gary I'm I'd ask you both to, to leave but I desperately need your uh <laughs> rental <laughs> purchase uh god kill me now I would uh, also like down, this Lord. box of wacky nerds <laughs> the assortment oh, the of flavors is <laughs> naughty could I have some wacky nerds <laughs> when we get back to the whipping cave all right. I just, I, you know what? Maybe I should get a job at Blockbuster instead. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, th- 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 this is now, we're in the late 80s. Blockbuster is everywhere, uh, at, honestly, at this point. There's at least one in your town at this point. And uh, Nintendo ends up uh, really getting pissed off at, this, at the fact that, that they, around this time, also start renting out video games. And copyright law in the U.S. did not have a specific clause on renting video games. However, the music industry managed to block such a thing for album rentals. So it was definitely in the conversation. Um, of being able to block like the ability to rent things out in this way. Vice President of Nintendo of America, Howard Lincoln, was quoted in the book Game Over, how Nintendo zapped an American industry, captured your dollars, and enslaved your children. Which is a bit, a bit of a mouthful book. Mm-hmm. That's a bit of a long title. Um, but this crazy person, Howard Lincoln, literally is quoted as saying that the video game rentals were, quote, nothing less than commercial rape. Him and Jack Valenti. <laughs> it's I swear to God, these industry hats really love busting out the fucking. I'm not going to the caves behind that fucking guy's house. I'll tell you that much. Hey. So Nintendo decides a f- to file a formal lawsuit against Blockbuster in New Jersey federal court in 1989, claiming the copyright law had been breached after learning photocopies of manuals uh, were being made to accompany game rentals, and it actually mm. came down to the manual. This was settled out of court uh, for an undisclosed amount and an agreement not to photocopy any more manuals, which sucks because everyone knows that everyone knows that it was it was like your lucky day if you rented a video game from Blockbuster and the manual actually was in it. And, you know, let's say a game like Metal Gear Solid where, like, you kind of need to look into the manual in order to get past a certain part of the game because there was a certain radio frequency that existed in, within the contents of its pages, then you were just kind of fucked if the manual wasn't included. I think sometimes they started printing some basic stuff on like the back of mm-hmm. the case. 
I kind of remember that a little bit. But uh, yeah, I did not know any of this was going on with uh, contention. But it makes so much sense. I was like, because I always felt like, I was like, kind of like stre- streaming in a lot of ways, like being able to watch video games on stream. It was like, this is too good to be true. There's no way I can just take what is normally a $60 video game purchase and and rent it and take it home and actually like beat it in the amount of time that I rented it because some of those games were beatable in a five-day period. Um, so in 1994, Blockbuster was raking in $4 billion a year via 3,600 locations. And to get more perspective, this chain was larger than the next 375 of Huizinga's competitors combined. So this is an interesting thing. Uh, Payne talks about how he got his start working for a Texas chain, uh, actually owned by HEB, which if you're a Texan, apparently that's a big deal, that was called Central Video. And they did things differently from Blockbuster. And uh, they had a one-night rental window for new releases, and they had their catalog, their old videos, available for only a dollar to rent for a three-night period. And he claimed that uh, this method of of uh, kind of doing business resulted in more satisfied customers, more people kind of taking part in the catalog system, which in a lot of blockbusters was kind of a graveyard and uh, kind of ended up producing higher profits per location than the competing blockbusters. Uh, According into his book, word got out that that's how you should run a video store and Hollywood video stole a lot of those techniques And Hollywood Video started their own uh, business model where they would open across the street Mm -hmm. from Blockbuster locations, specifically their highest performing ones, and outcompete them using the more straightforward, movie-centered, community-centered business model that was less combative than what Blockbuster was doing. And that resulted in more happy customers. And while even while Blockbuster was opening more locations and raking in all these gigantic scale profits, Hollywood videos store on a store by store level outperformed them simply from just these small kind of just customer focused techniques, which I find fascinating. Uh, eventually, Payne would uh, become a blockbuster franchisee and Hollywood video would continue with its own kind of uh, smaller but oddly similar downfall to Blockbuster as the internet kind of took over. Yeah, for sure. And in 1994, uh, by the way, Viacom acquires Blockbuster for $8.4 billion. Um, So continuing growth at this point, there was also a test concept they tried in New Mexico and Indiana called the Blockbuster Block Party, which was an entertainment complex with a restaurant, games, laser tag arena, motion simulator rides, and more housed within a windowless building the size of a city block. Isn't that interesting? It went nowhere. So this is a total victory for Huizenga. He took this company in 1986, bought this company for $18 million, sold it for $8.4 billion. That is an insane turnaround. That is an ungodly amount of money. If you invested with Huizenga in Blockbuster at that time, you did better than any investor possibly could. Uh, Sumner Redstone, the media mogul behind Viacom, uh, said that basically Blockbuster was a cash-driven business and Redstone desperately wanted to buy Paramount Studios, which, uh, oddly enough, Viacom's main streaming platform right now is Paramount+. Plus. So, you know, weird uh, movie magic coincidences there. Uh, and the fact is, is... 
to get the cash needed to buy Paramount, he needed Blockbuster. And Blockbuster, you know, Huizenga, like, was absolutely, like, he was more interested in growing the company. He was more interested in that payday than actually, like, renting videos to people. And so he took his, uh, he took his payout and he noped out of there. It's, um... It's it's a legacy. People talk about Huizenga as this like caring man, as about this like driven business guy. He ended up creating a, a company called Auto Nation afterwards, which itself was this giant disruptive retail chain in the world of auto dealerships. Like the guy left a legacy, but without him, Blockbuster uh, was still repeating a lot of the mistakes that they were kind of uh, had no answer for. Because all that growth, all those new locations meant tons of overhead, meant tons of stock, meant tons of employees and tons of debt that um, they could not open enough stores to like keep the plates spinning. And Viacom quickly learned that Blockbuster was a liability. So in June of 1997, Taco Bell president John Antioco resigned to become CEO of Blockbuster. Wait, uh, before that, in 1996, so uh, there was a second CEO after... Jake is like Charlie in the mailroom from It's Always Sunny right now. I just want to let you guys know he is on the case. He is visibly sweating. There's paper just sort of floating behind him. Go on, Jake. Uh, Huizenka gave uh, gave the CEO position on his way out to a guy named Steve Berard. Uh, the franchises started losing money, the inventory problems, the just the fact that more and more people were coming to Blockbuster, not getting what they wanted and paying higher prices for what they didn't even come there to get. Uh, they were losing money. It was not looking like a, a good business opportunity. Redstone brings in Bill Fields in 1996, who was a like heir apparent at Walmart. And by 1996, Walmart was this giant retail success story. You know, it was this amazing upset where the supermarket, the department store, the hardware store, everything is just becoming Walmarts all over America. And Bill Fields has the idea to turn blockbusters into retail stores. He starts bringing in uh, CDs to buy and movie tchotchkes and posters and uh, electronics and all uh, t- stuffed animals, all this stuff to turn blockbusters into retail stores. Because, hey, you know, uh, people people buy stuff at Blockbuster, probably, even though that's not why they come to Blockbuster. And this mm-hmm. resulted in massive losses, warehouses full of unsold tchotchkes. It was a complete disaster. And the uh, Redstone was like, huffing and puffing because he sunk all that money into Blockbuster. Like, investors were mad. The stock was doing terribly. Everything was just blowing up. And that is when Antiaco is brought in as the Blockbuster CEO, and he is hailed as the conquering hero who will save this company. It's also an amazing time to be the uh, CEO of Blockbuster because in 1997, the DVD is introduced. And the DVD is smaller, it's more affordable, and it absolutely just turn the turnaround for making a profit on a movie is so much cheaper than the old VHS model. It's like a massive boom just on the DVD thing alone. The blockbuster is immediately doing better because their costs have been brought down so much. So I think it's like 98, 99, maybe 2000 when I get a job there. Uh, one little anecdote I told 
um, the other day during the study sesh was the first day I worked there. This the, one of one of those memories that makes me cringe every time I think of it. Um, I was shown the ropes on how to complete a transaction, and I was like, "Oh, this is actually really easy." Because I was really stressed out. It was baby's first job, and I was renting out DVDs left and right. There was this one couple who was like so excited to go home and uh, watch a movie on a date night. They were like, "Yeah, we had plans to go out." And then we decided, you know what? Let's just rent a movie, make a nice, you know, have a uh, pick up a nice dinner to go and just get cozy and watch. We're so excited. They were so pleased. I get a phone call. The store starts getting phone calls um, an hour or so into my shift. Um, people unable to open their co- DVD copy of whatever movie of fucking All the President's Men or whatever the fuck it was. And um, it was because uh, for a ton of customers, I forgot to remove the lock, the magnetic oh. lock that would allow you to access. Because like a VHS didn't really have that because, it, but, um, because you know, it'd be hard to like walk out of a store with a bunch of VHSs that you stole. But DVDs, you could just slide that disc into your pocket, right? And make out like, uh, you know, gang uh, with a bunch of uh, you know free DVDs uh, at, at the time were very expensive. Um, so yeah, they had those magnetic locks and boy, oh boy, was I. I couldn't believe I wasn't fired. And then also, I guess I'll just throw it in there. I was working late one night. A man came into the store with a silver revolver. Uh, uh, lucky me, I was the one person at the register. So uh, I got shot at, uh, which was fun. It was like a warning shot. Uh, it was very interesting. I couldn't open the register because I, in order, the only way I knew how to open a register was to scan a card and then scan uh, uh, whatever DVD or VHS tape you were renting and then charge you money, and then hit enter, and then it would pop open the register, and I would uh, uh, be able to finish the transaction. Um, but uh, no one informed me that there was actually a barcode on the cash register I could have scanned to open it, um, but they didn't want to tell me that because they didn't want me using that for uh, lascivious purposes. So instead, uh, I was just screaming for my manager over and over again and until my manager uh, came out, and then I got down the ground and essentially waited to either live or die while uh, they had this crazy exchange. And then if you remember, Blockbuster had entrance doors and exit doors. And it was like, I thought impossible to exit through the entrance doors because there's no handle. They're like, they're flush against the, the, the door frame. It's, it's a heavy metal door with glass. Um, he ends up going out the entrance doors, getting stuck in that little space in between the two entrance doors. His gun goes off again. Uh, and regardless of I did not quit my job. I stayed there and definitely, uh, would stare at that bullet hole in the ground that was never actually, um, you know, fixed or, or, uh, removed, uh, and just think about my life quite a lot. So that's my fun. Uh, I got shot at a blockbuster story, but regardless, um, an initial crack in the facade came around this time when blockbuster turns down an offer from Warner bros to rent out their DVDs, the new emerging medium at the time for a period of time ahead of when they'd go on sale in exchange for 40% of the rental revenue. Blockbuster turns this deal down, as I said, which propels Warner to reduce their sale price and make deals with other folks like Walmart, which had a huge impact on Blockbuster's DVD rental business. One of their first initial kind of missteps in the in the history of the company. Now we're now we're my next section is literally called the beginning of the end, Jake. Another Antiaco mess up is uh, hurting from that initial uh, kerfuffle. He then offers revenue sharing deals with other studios. And that uh, actually the idea is, is, you know, 
stock. You need to keep stocking all of these DVDs as they come out because new releases are blockbusters, bread and butter. And you offer these sweetheart deals where you get cheaper copies of the movie, but you have to order more units at this lower price and the studios get a cut of the rental when all is said and done. So instead of uh, buying, say, 100 copies of a $65 movie for $6,500, now you have to buy 300 units at $30 a copy for $9,000, and you still have to pay the studios more, and they get to determine which movies you have to buy, leaving you in the lurch for hundreds of units that nobody even wants of flops. So it's just a really unfortunate, uh, just... A, just the cash problems are keep keep happening to Blockbuster. The whole time, they're still opening more stores. Uh, Antiaco unveils another program where uh, DVDs uh, are... They, he desperately wants people to buy DVDs at Blockbuster instead of places like Walmart or the supermarket or anywhere else where they are absolutely at a cut rate price because they want them to be loss leaders. You come to Walmart for a cheap DVD and, oh, whoops, you bought $300 in gardening uh-huh. equipment while you were there. The idea is, oh, hey, uh, if you come and buy a full price DVD at Blockbuster for more than you were going to at the stores that you were already just happened to be at, we'll give you a free rental. The thing is, nobody new came to Blockbuster to buy DVDs at more than market rate. They just gave a bunch of free rentals to the existing Blockbuster customer base that happened to buy a DVD while they were there. (laughs) Just tons, oh God, tons of missteps. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So it's also right around this time that a man named Reed Hastings was shocked to find out that he was being fined by Blockbuster in the amount of $40 for a late return on the film Apollo 13. Hastings had also been an admirer of Amazon and wished to find a product he could distribute online and via the mail in a similar way as they were doing with books. VHS tapes were considered, but they were deemed way too expensive to stock and too delicate to ship. But DVDs changed all that. Hastings had his co-founder, Mark Randolph, mail him a DVD. He lived in a different part of California, uh, and he had Mark Randolph mail him a DVD, and when it showed up intact, they decided to launch Netflix.com as the first DVD rental and sales website in 1998, with only 30 employees and 925 titles available, which is pretty much every film on a DVD available at that time. And for some perspective, Blockbuster is revealed to be making $800 million in late fees, which 
which was 16% of its revenue. And this was building uh, a building frustration with customers that felt they had monopolized the industry, then bled every customer for everything they were worth based on the late fee model. I just remember around this time, everyone complained about the late fees. It was just a thing. And it was like, why does it have to be like this? But Blockbuster's like the only real, the, really the only option for many people. Whereas Netflix, on the other hand, based their business model in flat fee, unlimited rentals without due dates, late fees, or shipping and handling fees, which at the time felt too good to be true compared to the extremely strict late fee policy on Blockbuster's end, thus putting some pressure on. According to Mark Randolph, the co-founder, the real epiphany was, quote, why are we storing all these DVDs in the warehouse? Maybe we could find a way to let our customers store the disc at their house on their shelves. Just keep the DVDs as long as they want it. This is where Netflix turned what should have been their weakness into a positive, which is Netflix was incapable of stocking as many copies of new releases as Blockbuster could. And so why would you go to this DVD by mail system if you never got the movie that you wanted when it came out? And the answer was the queue. By taking the catalog section, the archive, the kind of uh, last resort, just nonsense films that Blockbuster had kind of just used to fill their shelves with and actually making it a selling point by having the users pre-choose movies that they wouldn't necessarily be mad at, even if they wasn't the movie they wanted the most, they managed to circulate DVDs that would be earning no money for any other rental store and keep their subscription costs from people that had ideally wanted new releases for cheap. Then they introduced kind of the uh, algorithms for recommending movies from the catalog. And now people were discovering films and actually happy watching old movies that Blockbuster maybe could like squeeze a dollar out of out of uh, in their retail model. But the one thing that Netflix couldn't do is stock enough new releases. And that was the one strength Blockbuster had. Um, now. It's basically the long tail. Yeah. That's what everybody talks about, that Netflix found a way to monetize the thousands of movies that were collecting dust in Blockbuster stores. Another thing that Blockbuster was doing wrong is that while Netflix was meticulously keeping track of everybody's viewing habits and trying to find trends on what to stock and what to recommend, Blockbuster had not updated their core uh, computer systems from the 80s. They were still using the same point of sale system and had no way to actually utilize this. In, in, in today's modern parlance, data is king. Blockbuster had a incomparably valuable resource of consumer viewing habits at their fingertips and had no yeah. way to utilize it because their technology was so completely ancient. It's the thing that gave them the edge initially, and then they just did not think to evolve with the times. It makes sense. Because it no would have been too expensive, and, and you that's were blown money away. you could use to open more stores with the same You were old blown computers. away that uh, we were saying that, yeah, it was the same antiquated, just blue screen with like, it looked like Apple II or some yeah. shit. You know what I mean? It was a blue screen with like blinky, just ones and zeros, and very, very rudimentary. There was no internet on those computers. There was nothing of that sort. And it was very, very antiquated, which is so odd because you would think they would want to, you know, I mean, at least for, for Netflix's credit, they started out as this like DVD on demand mailing service 
and very, very quick, as soon as they could, uh, you know, moved over to the streaming thing and have, are still trying to get gain, keep the upper hand in terms of technological development, in terms of like what viewers want and where, where things can evolve. Um, but Blockbuster never did that. I will say Blockbuster did first attempt a video on demand service in 2000. Uh, they partnered with Enron, uh, another very uh, successful company uh, at the time. But, but that deal was terminated by the latter company, by Enron, just a year later over fears the Blockbuster would be unable to provide enough films for the service. Also in the year 2000, Blockbuster, and this is what a lot of people falsely point at as like the what the biggest thing that drove Blockbuster out of business. It's still a huge, I mean, everything would be different if this had not gone the way it went. But in 2000, Blockbuster turns down the chance to purchase Netflix for $50 million, which came at a time when Netflix was suffering losses while also in the dot-com bubble. But then CEO of Blockbuster, John Antiaco, scoffed at the offer saying, quote, the dot-com hysteria is completely overblown. Jake, what do you have to say about uh, about all that and um, uh, whatever else with Blockbuster around this time? So, yeah, Reed Hastings and Mark Randolph and uh, there are a bunch of other executives met at Blockbuster's Dallas headquarters in September of 2000. The proposal was straightforward. Blockbuster would pay $50 million for Netflix, a relatively small amount for Blockbuster, which at this time was paying $1.5 billion every year just in like DVD costs. Um. But Reed wanted a joint forces relationship, a combined business where they would be in control of the online part and the mail-in delivery, and together they would be greater than the sum of its parts. And Antiaco did not see potential in the deal and rejected it outright. Uh, he explained to Hastings that their business model was unsustainable, and uh, Randolph has said that Antioco was supposedly struggling not to laugh at the proposal. <laughs> For years afterwards, Antioco repeatedly minimized the threat posed by Netflix, called it a niche business that would never have more than 30 million, I'm sorry, never have more than 3 million subscribers. Uh, a trivial amount compared to the tens of millions of people that visit Blockbuster stores every year. So further pressure was put on Blockbuster with the introduction of another uh, video rental system, Redbox, which offered cheaper rentals and no late fees as well, and no interactions with actual other people. This was essentially anything that wasn't... All, right, all the olds, all the boomers that weren't getting taken by Netflix, and especially when Netflix goes streaming, um, Redbox was the one... Like, my parents... Love, still, I think, love Redbox. It is like such a boomer thing. It's like you just walk right up to the kiosk and you get your DVD and you want, you know what I mean? Um, uh, anybody who still cannot figure out like how an Amazon Prime account might work on their TV, right, uh, would, would then get taken by Redbox because. They also just solved those little issues, this little kiosk that could be placed also in other retail spaces. So, you know, that was the other thing, the the boomer thing of like, well, you could go shop for your groceries and then you got it right there. You don't even have Not to go to that, another store. But Redbox rented them for a dollar a day. Yes. Once again, meaning that the price was low enough and the one day thing meant that the turnaround was higher. So they were renting way more DVDs while Blockbuster was still stuck at this three evening thing that just did was terrible for stock. Also, while this was happening, uh, Blockbuster was really slow to get their back catalog converted to DVDs because according to uh, Alan Payne, my number one bro dog, <laughs> in a talk with Antiaco, 
they had gotten some kind of study done or market analysis that said that uh, movie buyers uh, had were format agnostic, that they were willing to take home a VHS in the same numbers as they were a DVD and were willing to just foot the future lack of selection as more and more VCRs got sent to the closet before they actually ended up restocking anything. I was surprised to find out that Blockbuster actually hits its peak as a company in 2004, with 9,000 stores globally and $5.9 billion in revenue. Later that year, Blockbuster finally gives in to evolving business models and introduces Blockbuster Online while also putting the kibosh on late fees altogether. And it was estimated that the late fee change cost the company $200 million on top of another $200 million in order for them to switch over to the online business model. Then CEO John Antioco said, Viacom didn't think these investments made sense for its own strategy, so it sold its stake in Blockbuster, which became publicly held. Our stock was dr- uh, depressed by the $400 million plan investment, and that set the stage for a proxy fight. So this is where Alan Payne, who was actually running Blockbuster stores as a franchisee, meticulously and painfully recounts Antiaco's decisions during this part. These big showy things specifically to like have catchy headlines in the Wall Street Journal that would make the investors think, oh, they're shaking things up. We will invest. We'll, you know, we won't tank the stock price. But for an on the ground actual store is death. And that was stuff like um, Doing the mail, do it starting the online thing without a proper uh, infrastructure, doing the Netflix uh, by mail thing where they looped in stores to like have free trade-ins with the uh, Netflix, I'm sorry, with the Blockbuster locations that just made the stores foot the cost and the uh, late fee thing, which literally is the only way you keep these movies in stock is to have them bring it back. And for every person that is like smugly satisfied that they got to hold on to a copy of Titanic for like an extra week without getting hassled, that was like 10 people that came into the store hoping to get a DVD of Titanic that it wasn't there. And so that hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue lost, the stock price tanks 50% because the stores are losing so much money and it's just a completely oblivious thing where Antiaco is like, we did it. You asked for it. No more late <laughs> fees. And the people ought, the people who actually have to, add a profit, rent DVDs to other people are just eating shit. It's just not sustainable. No, it was a massive- no, no, Jake. According to John Antiaco, the company fell apart the because of a man named- begged him not to do it. They had multiple meetings where they just showed the charts and were like, you literally can't do this. Antiaco had a test run, or no, one of the franchisees did a test run in like Chattanooga, Tennessee, in a smaller market where they personally got rid of late fees and the way they did it was they had a phone tree system where if enough DVDs were overdue, they would start calling people and saying, hey, uh, if you don't, if everybody doesn't bring their DVDs back, we'll have to bring back late fees, which requires so much personal touch and uh-huh. community. Collections. By that point, you're doing collections, yeah, which is a just fucking Just communal nightmare. guilt. But that was enough for, despite all the other owners being like, no, we need late fees to keep these movies in stock and to like actually have satisfied customers. 
pissing off like eight deadbeats is not the same as like having a functioning movie rental store. But no, Jake, according to John Antiaco, it was actually a man named Carl Econ that uh, destroyed Blockbuster. Is it Econ uh, or I can? I can. I can. I don't know. Uh, but I can. I can is funnier. Uh, he refers to this guy as an activist shareholder who ends up buying almost 10 million shares in Blockbuster, which were up for grabs from the Viacom split and became a major voice in the decision making around the company. And though I don't know if this is exactly true, I do find this to be fucking fascinating when it comes to just like how a company can just devour itself from the inside. So he didn't like the direction the company was going in with the no late fees and the focus on online and had his own ideas about how about where to go next with the company. This led to what I just referred to as a proxy war within the company and essentially John Antioco loses the battle and agrees to leave the company in July of 2007 after his yearly bonus was hugely reduced and a power play from Carl and others. The company files for bankruptcy just three years after that. Antiaco said, I firmly believe that if our online strategy had not been essentially abandoned, Blockbuster Online would have 10 million subscribers a day. And we'd be rivaling Netflix for the leadership position in the internet downloading business. And instead, after Antiaco left, according to him, uh, the company announced a big price increase for online customers, cut way back on marketing, and decided to intensify the focus on the store-based business. Part of that was an ill-fated attempt to take over Circuit City, which went bankrupt soon afterward. All the members of the senior management team I'd worked with left the company. I sold my stock and bought a bunch of Netflix shares, which... which were then priced around $20. It wasn't an emotional investment. I could see that Netflix was going to have the whole DVD-by-mail market handed to it, along with a direct path to streaming movies into homes, which is exactly what Netflix has done. I thought I was a genius when I sold my shares at about $35. Today, they're worth over $200. What do you have to say to Mr. Antiaco, Jake Young? On the case, Jake on the streets. Blockbuster was sinking millions of dollars into Blockbuster online and they only had a couple of million subscribers. At one point, they were uh, just desperately trying to get to 2 million subscribers. And to sweeten the deal, they introduced the Total Access program, which became a uh, parasite, basically, on the backs of every actual store manager. Um, Basically, the idea was you use Blockbuster uh, by mail, by online, and you can just go to any Blockbuster with your uh, total access membership and just walk away with a free DVD to rent from the store. Uh, This drastic, okay, this is from Alan Payne. Um, Millions more DVDs were now being removed by total access subscribers for free. Every rental has a cost, simply put. Blockbuster could not afford to stock new releases for its store customers, plus the total access subscribers. The transformation of Blockbuster Online into total access had created a parasite that was sucking stores dry. Almost overnight, the availability of new releases was the worst it had ever been. Even worse during the old VHS cassette days when it cost $65 a piece to stock them. Um, If it was Antiaco who did not understand the economics of a blockbuster store, it was impossible to keep the stores adequately stocked when the total access parasite was sucking the life out of them. Sales continued to plummet. Now, here's a magic moment that I, I want you to know. This is relatively unknown. In January of 2007, Antiaco and Reed Hastings were both attending the Sundance Film Festival and a meeting was arranged at Hastings Chalet. 
Hastings actually offered to buy Blockbuster's online business. Oh, wow. And that became a badge of honor for Antiaco. He had finally shaken Netflix enough to like be a competitor on their own home turf. Price was not discussed at the meeting, but a formal offer of uh, was made for $200 per Blockbuster subscriber. It would have equaled about $700 million. The board recommended that they didn't accept the offer. Uh, they believed that Blockbuster had all the momentum and that if Netflix would pay $700 million now, they would pay a lot more later. The board agreed and the offer was rejected. According to Payne, Antiaco could have saved Blockbuster right then. He could have fully retired its debt, rebuilt the store's depleted in- inventory, and returned the company to profitability by focusing on what it did best, getting customers new releases in a convenient and affordable way. Soon afterwards, he announced his resignation. Wow. And while all this is happening, Payne is claiming that by sticking to the basic rental fundamentals that he uh, stuck to even back starting in the uh, 80s, the stores in Texas and Alaska they were running were stronger than ever, outperforming corporate stores by a factor of nearly 100% at times. So in 2011, Dish Network buys Blockbuster for $320 million and announces they would keep just 500 stores open. So from 20, 2004, 9,000 stores open globally. In 2011, just 500. And in a last-ditch effort under new president Michael Kelly, they attempt to push out a new service called Blockbuster Movie Pass to compete with Netflix. It would be a $10 a month membership, giving members access to both a streaming service and movies and games by mail. However, it was never fully launched and was dropped pretty quickly. And in 2012, they gave up on trying to compete with Netflix altogether. Stores began closing left and right through this time with only 51 remaining in the U.S. in 2014. And those stores could remain open by paying a licensing fee to Dish that was no longer a corporate entity providing supplies of branded products, forcing each store to handle their own, to create their own member IDs and uh, you know category cards, let's say, and uh, probably and even clothes. They even had the to shirts. hire like, IT guys from the 80s and early 90s to keep the store... <laughs> Uh, point of sale terminals working. So 51 became nine and then eight dropped out after that, leading to leaving, that's right, just one remaining blockbuster in Bend, Oregon. The shop will set you up with a membership card made by hand by the employees if you visit. And uh, they mostly make money off of tourism and merch sales these days. Uh, not really so much on actual rentals. And most recently, they actually uh, set up an account on Airbnb and uh, allowed some like lucky guests to do a sleepover in the store. They remodeled a section of it to look straight up like a living room from the 90s. And you can go have this like crazy like period piece party uh, if you want over there, which is kind of incredible. And uh, yeah, that's where it remains. And essentially, it's just this like one lady. She's just she seems really sweet Mm -hmm. who runs that shop. And, you know, the town really loves that it's there. and, And now it's just bringing people in. Uh, to that town just to just to check it out, just to like relive the nostalgia a little bit. And it's very much like a family. And that was at least cool. And that's the one thing I got from the documentary to spare you some time. Just that, you know, she, her employees really seemed to like her. And it really seemed to be like this very positive space for a lot of people. 
you know, a lot of kids like myself getting their first job before college, that sort of thing. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's it's cool that it exists. I can't believe, I honestly thought going into this, it was closed by this point. It still exists, this fucking blockbuster. It's kind of insane. Um, so Jake, like, what do you, so so what do you think with, with blockbuster before we get out of here? I don't have a final quote or anything. What, what should they have done? To um to be a successful business today, you said focus on new releases and getting them to the people quickly. Should they have not ever tried to stream they or ever have. tried to do the Netflix model? Another deal that Antiaco fucked up was uh, Stars and uh, I believe uh, what's the other company? I, I'm not. I'm whatever. Um, two movie uh, stars and I'm not going to say Encore. I I can't find the quote immediately, but. Uh, these movie holding companies offered Blockbuster, who was investing in a streaming style platform at the time, a deal for uh, movies that they could offer through the internet for a dirt cheap price. And Antiaco turned it down, even though he was had like a small team trying to get this like streaming thing off the ground. It was never a major project, though. That same companies, those same companies made the similar offer to Netflix and Netflix immediately took it up and exploded the selection on Netflix streaming when they introduced streaming onto computers and mobile devices. And that insane amount of content that was so cheap uh, for a highway robbery prices gave Netflix the backbone that it needed to become the streaming giant that it is. And its current troubles that it's going through is because it can no longer get just those hours and hours of desirable movies and TV shows at the same cut rates that they had previously. Yeah. The same way that Blockbuster offered expensive movies at a fraction of the cost, Netflix offered tons of content at a fraction of the cost that would have cost you otherwise. And so it's just insane watching history repeat itself. It's like yeah. poetry. It rhymes. People will always gravitate towards the most bang for their buck. And you can build an empire on these weird little loopholes in the way products are valued, both cultural and physical. And once you lose that advantage, hoes ain't loyal, Holden. They'll find something else. They'll go somewhere else who can give them a better deal. Um, another thing about the late fees thing is that Blockbuster was sued by multiple states because the no late fees program uh, still had late fees. If you kept a movie for more than the extra week grace period, Blockbuster would charge you the full price of the DVD. Yeah. If you did not want the full DVD, you had 30 days to return it and get a refund minus a restocking fee, which is a fee that you have to pay for returning a movie late. Multiple state attorney generals sued Blockbuster for false advertising. And future uh, promotions for the program had to stress that there were still fees under the no late fees program. <laughs> I cannot recommend this book enough. It feels like a true crime thriller built to fail the inside story of Blockbuster's inevitable bust by Alan Payne. It was a cover to cover fucking fascinating read. And we shall see what happens with Netflix moving forward. We shall see. We're at an interesting time now. The the you know the stream our, our full streaming dystopia now exists and you know it's all the kiddies out there and all the people around my age who grew up with blockbuster 
I will just say, you know, the thrill of the hunt, I miss it. And I, I love how convenient it is, but I miss going to a CD store, excited to go pick up the new album, hoping it's it's in stock, um, coming home, listening to it on the way home and excitement. Now you do, don't have that really anymore. You just have Spotify. Uh, I and still feel with- a giddy little thrill when it's time for a new episode of Obi-Wan on Disney+. Plus. I still got that <laughs> like tiny little tingle of magic. But that feeling when you just want this one fucking movie so bad and you go and it's there and you get it and you're so excited to go home well, and make it a blockbuster, blockbuster night. The uh, answer was it wasn't there because of a series of horrible decisions by John <laughs> but sometimes it was and you went home and made it a blockbuster night and hey it was great at the end you always had to be kind and rewind uh i missed that little plastic card in my pocket mm-hmm. and um i do i do have such a ridiculous nostalgia for blockbuster video i may have to make a trip to bend one day uh because it was again just such a big foundational point in my childhood and it's so weird when those sorts of things you know like it's almost like sitting around the radio at some point turned into television for a whole generation of people and it must have been so weird to just have this like touchstone of your life just go away seemingly overnight and this that really seemed to happen with blockbuster and streaming and netflix and um it's just it's just a uh, fascinating for me so thank you everyone for checking out our episode on the history of blockbuster video wow what a difference <laughs> uh you guys have been the best we'll be back next week with more stuff until then Patreon.com forward slash Whizbrew if you'd like to get more uh, bonus content, weekly bonus episodes for just $5 a month. Patreon.com forward slash Whizbrew. They're good episodes, Holden. I find them funny and dynamic and you'll get in right in time for uh, porn and prejudice or porn and (laughs) pride and porn No, no, pride and, yeah, gay pride and porn judice. June, our our yearly, our annual blockbuster (laughs) event that we've been doing for years now. Good God. Uh, And also check me out on Twitch. Twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. Monday, Tuesday, Friday streams, twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators. So love seeing you Whisper fans pop in and say what's up. I'm getting more and more. It feels like every week. You guys are the best. Uh, Jake. Thursdays, the Cartoon Dumpster is a weekly stream of animated oddities from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. We, we make jokes. We have fun. It is a great time. Also, a lot of Whisper fans showing up, and it, it, it warms the cockles of my heart. Uh, go to youtube.com slash puppet Jared or twitch.tv slash puppet Jared. If you're one of those gamer weirdos, I appreciate it anyway. Uh, give me a sub, give me a follow. Uh, you know, I, I, if you like this podcast, I think you will have a fun time over on the cartoon dumpster Thursdays, 7 PM Eastern YouTube and Twitch. All right. Always remember, never stop bruising and keep on whizzing. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.